Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, for those of you that are stuck with me, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I'd like to conclude this chapter by looking at verses 27 to, uh, to 30. And if you would, I really would like you to take a look at these passages. You have a Bible in front of you. I'm not sure of the page number if you don't have one. I think this is a critical passage for us, especially as we move forward at Beth Ariel, as we consider a new location, new kinds of ministries, and uh, new direction for our congregation and for our work that the Lord has called us to do. The more and more that I looked at these verses and thought about its significance to us, more and more I felt this is particularly pertinent for us at this juncture uh, at, our, at our time. So let me read for you these verses in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Messiah. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the good news, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Messiah not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same things you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I've said many times, and I think it just continues to be reinforced as I get older and older, as I encounter more and more experiences, that life in the Lord, life as a person of faith, is a battlefield that we enter and embark upon. It is a battle. And I realize that when we all have first come to faith, or as Dan was speaking earlier, if we ever consider the faith about which we are uh, experiencing, there was that feeling, I know it was for me, that all my problems might now go away. Things might become stable and whole in my life. Finally, I will find the answer to whatever questions I may have had. And as time went on, I realized that much of that is true. But as Yeshua has said, in this world, we will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, he said. I have overcome the world. 
And so in many respects, this is a battle. And as I had read some time ago, the battle is intense, I think, because of two things. Not so much because of the circumstances we experience, but because the way in which we are expected to react to those circumstances. Because on the one hand, we who have now come to faith in Messiah Yeshua, we have now the responsibility to obey commands we may not like. And so because of that, we have to encounter the circumstances, endure the circumstances, deal with the circumstances in a way we may not like to deal with them because our Lord commands us to do such things. Sometimes, for example, he has commanded us to pray for our enemies. That's a command I don't like. I don't like. And I must confess, I don't obey as I ought. But that's the point I'm making. We're told to love one another. We're told that the Lord, while we were his enemies, loved us and gave his son for us. So this is just one example. Some of us might find honoring our father and mother to be a commandment I wish was not in the Bible. Whatever your experience with your parents have been over the course of your life, you may find yourself looking at a passage like that and saying, I I can't do that one. Just can't do it. I haven't had a great relationship with my parents over the years, better relationship with my mother than with my father. And yet when I think of honoring my parents, there are times when I said, I just can't do this. Or I should say, I just don't want to do this. The point is, circumstances are difficult to encounter because there are commandments we must obey that we may not like. And there are circumstances that we experience that we just don't understand why this has happened. And because of these perplexities, conflicts are challenging, conflicts are difficult. Now, in the book of Philippians, Paul is writing from a moment of great consternation. And yet, while he writes of that, he writes of great joy. Over 20 times in this letter, remember, he's writing this from prison. And his life is in the balance. And yet 20 times he writes, if I rejoice, I have great joy, I am celebrating. And he tells us some of the reasons why. Now, we don't need to go over the whole historical background on the book of Philippians. We've done that now for a couple of weeks. But I do want to show you something. If you look at chapter 1, for example, let me just kind of survey some things we've looked at. When you look at chapter 1, Paul expresses why he has such great joy with regard to the believers to whom he's writing. And so in verses, for example, 3 through 6 of chapter 1, he talks about this great joy because he is in fellowship with these believers at Philippi. He speaks of them being in partnership. Look at verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership. Now notice this phrase. In the good news, the gospel, in the good news from the first day until now. So on the one hand, he rejoices because there is what the Greek term koinonia, fellowship, togetherness, camaraderie, family. They're sons and daughters of God. He sees himself as in a family with these individuals, separated by many miles, but yet they are a family. And so they are in partnership. They are drawn together. And so he rejoices because of this partnership. Not only that, look at verse uh, 7 through 8. 
Not only does he rejoice because of this partnership, but look at this. This is so fascinating. He says, I have you in my heart. He cherishes these individuals. He loves these individuals. Mary Lou has recently listened to a message by Francis Chan. He talks about what it takes to minister to one another. Remember, the scripture calls us all ministers of one another. Some are called to the vocation of a minister, a pastor, a shepherd, a rabbi, a congregational leader. But every one of us are servants of the Lord. Every one of us are ministers in the body of Messiah. We minister in different ways, but we are all ministers. And you cannot adequately, effectively minister unless you love those that you need to minister to. It's a real tough one, isn't it? To love those that sometimes are unlovable for whatever reason it might be. But yet what Paul tells us here is that one of the reasons he had such great joy is because he cherished these believers in his heart. He was in partnership with them, saw them as family. He cherished them in his heart. He loved them dearly. And then lastly, he says in chapter 1 here in verse 9 through verse 11, not only has he loved them in his heart. Not only is he in partnership with them, but he is also praying for them. And so he mentions over and over again that he has remembered them. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And so he prays for them. Now, despite all of this goodness, despite all of this joy, Paul doesn't want us to forget that he is experiencing it in a moment of great consternation. So if you look at verses 12 through 20, 26 or so of chapter 1, he tells us of the consternation, the challenge, the trial that he is facing. Look at verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers, there's that family thing. What has happened to me? When he speaks about what has happened to me, he's speaking about the experiences that has led him into the condition he now finds himself in. He's a prisoner at Rome. Three times in this chapter, he mentions his chains. And this is a particular Greek word that speaks of a chain that the Romans had devised that was no more than 18 inches long. It was a chain that was connected to the soldier that was guarding him and then to his own wrist. And so he can never have any privacy for anything. He can never have any ultimate freedom to go wherever he wanted. He was under house arrest. At least he wasn't thrown into a hole somewhere, but he was under house arrest, but chained to this guard. And four times or six times a day, the guard rotation would be rotated. And he was chained to what was referred to as the Praetorian Guards. These were the elect, um, the unique soldiers that Caesar had developed for his own personal guard. There were some 10,000 in Rome. And so there would be a changing of the guards. But he tells us that despite his chains, the good news has been advanced. It's been promoted. Therefore, he rejoices in his chains. And to what degree has it been promoted and advanced? It says everyone in the Praetorian Guard has heard about Messiah. Well, how could they not hear as Paul is chained to this guard every four to six hours, a new guard, a new victim, as it were, that would hear the good news that Paul would describe? 
Would he stop if they told him to? Perhaps not. But even if he had to stop, he was writing all of these letters, some of which we have. Who knows how many other letters he wrote? And they must have been reading over his shoulders. And knowing Paul, he probably was reading aloud as he was writing whatever it was he was writing so that they would continually hear. And he said the whole Praetorian Guard had heard the good news. In fact, at the end of this book, he says, those of Caesar's household send you his greetings. The words that penetrated the minds and hearts of the Praetorian guardsmen then filtered their way into the very palace of Caesar himself. And so Paul rejoiced over his chains. But not only about his chains, if you take a look at verse 15, he says, it is true that some preach, proclaim Messiah out of envy and rivalry. He says in verse 17, those who do such things preach out of selfish ambition. And this is an amazing phrase, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Isn't that amazing? Here's a man that's down and out almost for the count, you might say, and they're still stirring up trouble for him. And what is he doing? He's in chains because of the good news. But look at Paul. He rejoices because despite that, Messiah is proclaimed. If he's proclaimed out of envy or even proclaimed to make his life more miserable, he doesn't care as long as Messiah is proclaimed to the nations. So he rejoices over his chains because the Praetorian Guard is heard and the household of Caesar is heard. He rejoices over his critics and his criticisms he had to endure because despite all of that, Messiah is proclaimed. And then in the very final verses here, he rejoices over the crisis he finds himself in. He is in a life and death crisis. That's why he says, for me to live is Messiah, to die is gain. He's thinking of his death. The the Caesar at the time that we're now talking about, this is 62 years after the time of Messiah. This is the reign of Nero. And this was a very horrific dictator of dictators. And eventually, he would bring about Paul, Paul's death and many other believers. So Paul knows his life is now in the balance. He knows the nature of Nero, and he knows time may be at hand. And so he writes, for me to live is Messiah, and for me to die is gain. No matter that he is in a life and death crisis, he rejoices. Because whether he lives or dies, Messiah will be glorified. The central factor of all of Paul's writings here is Messiah. And if you look, and I didn't point this out, but if you read it carefully, you will see some five, six, seven times he's mentioned the gospel. He's mentioned the good news for which he is in chains, the good news for which he's being criticized, the good news for which his life is in crisis, the good news with regard to his partnership with these believers at Philippi, the good news that has brought about his heart's desire and love for his people, the good news that has led him to pray for one another. It is the heart and soul of Paul, that the good news of Messiah, this message would go out to the ends of the earth. And whatever it would take, whatever he would have to suffer, he did not mind because his whole life revolves around the good news. What is this good news? The good news he describes for us in the book of Corinthians, he tells us, 
is the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and promised return of our Lord. That's what Paul rejoices in. That is what mobilizes him in everything that he does. And so when he gets to verse 27, I love this. He says, whatever happens, whether I live or die, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news. There it is again, of Messiah. Now, in the Greek, there's an interesting word that prefaces verse 27. He says, whatever happens, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Messiah. When he says only, he doesn't mean to suggest this is the only thing to be concerned about, but it's the preeminent thing to be concerned about. No matter what happens in our lives, no matter where we go, no matter where the Lord sends us, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, what Paul wants us to be mindful of is that we conduct our lives in a manner that is worthy of the good news about which we are to proclaim and which we are to live out. Now, here's another interesting thing about the Greek. When he says conduct yourselves, these are unique words. They only appear like one time. These are the only contexts in which they find themselves ex- existing. When he says only conduct yourself, this Greek word has within it the word polis. The word polis is the Greek word for city. So, for example, Mary Lou and I moved here from the city of Annapolis. And Annapolis means the city of Anne. The city of Indianapolis means the city of Indians or Indiana, whatever. I don't know what the preface is. But polis means city. And its unique phrase here means to say, conduct yourselves as appropriate citizens of the good news. That's what Paul is saying. Now, remember, these are believers in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman city, a Roman colony. It was a unique city in the Roman Empire. Anyone born in this city was immediately made a Roman citizen. And he was expected to live in accordance with Roman law and Roman culture and Roman support. They were, these were individuals that uh, rejoiced, as it were, celebrated their Romanesque nature. Paul is saying, When he says conduct yourselves, he means to say live out your citizenship. Now, where is our citizenship? Take a look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven. So now we know what we're to live like. We're to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven. We're to live like the character of God himself. Whatever happens, wherever we might be, whatever the circumstances, our responsibility is to live like heavenly individuals. In fact, if you turn back to the book of Ephesians and you look at chapter 4, written from the very same prison cell or house arrest, from the very same place, the very same time, at the same juncture, he writes the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. Now, if you look at chapter 4, look at this. He says, as a prisoner, there we are, he's in Rome, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, when he says live a life worthy of the calling or conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven, he doesn't mean conduct yourself so you can become a citizen. 
He doesn't mean conduct yourself so that you can receive the calling. You've already received the calling. You are already citizens of heaven. So what he's telling us is we're to live like we really are. This isn't a way of gaining heaven. Salvation is not something you can gain by living well. Live as well as you want. You cannot gain heaven by being a good person. You can only get to heaven by acknowledging we are bad people for whom God has done a good thing. Now, when I say we are bad people, I don't mean we're as bad as everyone else. We're not all Adolf Hitler's. But we all stand guilty before God, for we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, there is none righteous, none not one. And so when he says conduct yourself, he means to say live out who you truly are. You're a citizen of heaven, act like it. You have been called by God to be his child, live like that. And what does it look like? Look at Ephesians again. He says be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity in the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, if you turn back to Philippians, looking at chapter 1, what it means to conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven means this. We are to live lives of integrity. We are to be consistent with what we say. So as I said before, my good friend Mitch Treisman, with whom I had served with Chosen People Ministries many years ago, never forget during a devotional, he said, we have to make sure that our lip is consistent with our life. That the words we say is consistent with the life we live. That our beliefs are consistent with our behavior. The things we affirm are reflected in the way we live. That our doings has to be consistent with our doctrine. That what we espouse and embrace as the teachings of the word of God need to be reflected and fleshed out in our actions and in our attitudes and in our relationships. That's why these home groups, I think, are so important because you can't grow spiritually without being in a relationship with others. And so the only way you can bear with one another is if you're with one another. The only way we can really love is in community. God is love because he exists in community. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Spirit loves the Son, the Spirit loves the Father. There is an intercommunication and relationship within the persons of the Godhead. And so why does God create? It's really a very simple answer. He created the universe, he created the world that we might experience what only God experiences, love. And love cannot be experienced in isolation. It must be experienced in community. God exists in community. That's what echad means. He is one. He is in union with the three persons of the triunity. It is a unity of which God, within which God exists. So the first thing he talks about here is that we are to conduct ourselves, live as citizens of heaven, which means to be people of integrity. That what we say is reflected in what we do. And so someone has once said, I remember years ago, um, someone speaking on this. And they said, what book can you give me to give to my friends so that I can share with them the love of Messiah that they may find him as Savior? 
What sermon or sermon series can I send out, make copies of and give so that they might hear the good news of Messiah? And the individual responded by having them turn to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3, I think it is. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll get to it eventually here. In 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3, Paul writes, You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts and known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Messiah. So what is the message we can give? What is the sermon series we can send? It is your life to be lived before others. And so the first step in living a, uh, a conducting ourselves worthy of the Lord is to be a people of integrity. Now take a look at this. He says, then he goes on to say, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the good news. Now, when Paul speaks about the faith of the good news, he's not talking about saving faith. He's talking about the content of our faith, the teaching that springs from our faith, the theological realities that are found in the word of God. For example, if you look at the book of Jude, and again, you don't have to turn there, but the book just before the book of Revelation, in verse 3, Jude writes, He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the believers. When he talks about contending for the faith, he means contending for the truths that the faith consists of. He's talking about doctrine. He's talking about teachings. He's talking about theology. There's another interesting passage in this regard. When Paul writes, I'm trying to get there. When Paul writes to um, his disciple Timothy, he says this in chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith. He's not talking about abandoning salvation, losing salvation. He tells us what he's talking about. They will abandon the faith and look, follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. He's talking about doctrines. He's talking about truths. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people and they talk about different things. But his whole point in this whole passage is to teach the word of God truthfully. Verse 11, command and teach these things. He then tells Timothy to entrust these things to other people who can teach them to others. So what he says here is, first of all, he says that you are standing firm in one faith, contending for the faith. The faith are the truths of God's word. That's why these home groups are so critical, that we understand the word of God rightly, that we're not left to our own imagination, our own subjective feelings, our own thinkings, but what does the word of God truly say? And that necessitates some skill and it necessitates some patience and some time. But notice this phrase. He says that you stand firm in one spirit. To conduct ourselves worthily means to live with integrity. But it also means to
to live in unity. This phrase, to stand firm, is a neat, really a neat word. Only appears here. It's the word sin athleno. Sin athleno. The preface sin, S-Y-N. We get words like synergy from it. Synchronicity from it. Synergism from it. That preface S-Y-N, sin or soon in Greek. Is, appears in this letter about 15, 16 times, I counted. And it means, it's the word translated with, together. It's a way of talking about oneness. When he says to stand firm, he means to say to be united together. And the second part of sin athleno is the word athlen, athleno. It comes from the word, we get the word athlete from it. The point is that we're to stand firm in unity as a team, is what Paul is saying. And so he's saying here, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you are standing together as one team. And he says, in one spirit and in one, uh, one heart. The phrase here literally means in one heart and one mind. Now, this is very critical for any body to exist. That we need to realize that we are a team. Some other I- illustrations are we are a body with different members. Some, another image is a building with different blocks and in different configurations in the wall that holds up the building. The foundation is Messiah himself, and he builds on that foundation apostles and prophets and teachers and leaders of one kind or another. Or a body with different members, or a team with different team members. Not everybody. This is a thing to think about. You know, how does a team operate? When I think of football, when the coach calls in the play, the guys get in the huddle, and they don't say, do we really want to run this play? What is the coach thinking? Maybe we should go tell him that this is really not the play we want to run because I'm not feeling too good right now. I don't know if I want to run the ball. And I don't even know if I want to block for you. you know? And I don't even know if I can throw, throw a pass. Let's get a different play. That doesn't happen, does it? The coach calls in the play, and whatever the team, whatever the members on the field think about the play is irrespective of what they do. They fulfill the job that they're called to do. They run the play that God... Now, afterwards, they may say, gee, I wish you didn't call that play. But they run the play. Not everybody can be the captain of the team. Not everybody can be the coach of the team. Not everybody can be the quarterback on the team. Not everybody can be a linesman on the team. Not everybody can be a running back on the team. Everybody's got to play their position in consort with one another. Otherwise, you have anarchy. And that's why in a congregation we have elders and deacons. And that's why elders and deacons sometimes, more often than not, in consort with the entire congregation, make choices and decisions they have to make. Sometimes the leadership has to make decisions irrespective of the congregation. There's just no time where the issues are not so critical. And so in such instances, yeah, we may have a thousand different opinions about it, but here's the play. We have to run it. And Paul says that we should stand as one team. And that means when the play is run, 
We don't look back and say, what, it's, you know, what a ridiculous play to call. What a foolish play. Or, hey, that was a great play. You know? We all rejoice together. We all suffer together. You know? We're a team. And that's what a team does. And so Paul is saying that we stand firm as a team. And look what we're contending for. Not for our own desires and our own wills, but what we believe will enable the faith to go forward. To be proclaimed, to have greater impact, and to make a greater difference not only in our lives and the lives of others. And so what does it mean to conduct yourself worthy as a citizen of heaven? It means to be a person individually of integrity. So that the congregation as a whole can be a congregation of integrity. We are the sum of its parts. But not only ought we to be a people of integrity, we have to be a people who fight for unity. We have to be one. You cannot go in a thousand different directions. And so our congregation is in the process of becoming one. That's why some people are not here any longer. They could not be one with us. I respect them for that. It would have been miserable, terrible for people who don't want to be one, move in the direction we want to uh, move in, to be complaining all the time, to be fighting the leadership all the time, to be seeking to have its own ways. That's what division is all about. And Paul tells us that's the very thing that the congregation of believers has to contend for, is the unity of the faith, that we act and behave like a team. Doesn't mean we can't have difference of opinions, but ultimately, we can only run one play at a time. And when we run the play, we look to say, hey, listen, I'm on the team, man, whatever it takes. I don't need... To have the preeminence. Paul talks about uh, some, or John talks about some who desire the preeminence. I don't need to have that. I'm willing to play my part. It might be a little toe on the body, but it helps balance, helps give us a little stability. Maybe you're a big toe. It enables us to really stand. It doesn't matter what our role is. What matters is that we perform our role as God has equipped us to do, with love one for another and in unity together so we can move forward in the direction God has for us. And then the last thing he mentions, but I think that word is so, so great, one as a team. It's really kind of a cool thing. And then he says in verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This word for frightened is a neat word too. It's a word that's used for a horse that gets scared when it runs into battle. Now, there's no wisdom in running foolishly into battles. But there's no courage when you run away from battles either. And so this word means to suggest not only should we be a people of integrity and a people who foster unity, but a people who are courageous. That we're not frightened like a horse bucks its rider when it's ready to charge in a battle. Some horses can't do it. But he's telling us, don't be frightened of such things. The enemy is fierce. We know that. The enemy is relentless. We know that. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, again, written from the same place, put on the whole armor of God so as to withstand the attacks of the enemy. And those attacks come from all spheres and all places. But Paul admonishes us. He encourages us. Don't be frightened. 
Don't buck like a horse that is about to go into battle. For us to live is Messiah, to die is gain. We need to pray for our brethren in these Muslim and uh, Middle Eastern countries where they are being killed, tormented, tortured, perhaps, for their faith, that they not be frightened. To die is gain. But here are three reasons, if I can just close with this very quickly, why it is we should not be frightened. He tells us in verse 28, number one, when we encounter struggles that might cause fear, he says, don't be frightened because it is a sign that you will be saved, that you truly belong to God. So I remember Yeshua's own words. You know, blessed are those who revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice for your place is in heaven. And so he says here, don't be frightened over the challenges. It's a sign. It's an indicator. It is, as it were, a promise that you will be saved in the time of danger and you will ultimately be with me. Look at verse 29. Not only is it uh, do we not need to be so, need to be frightened because we have this assurance of our salvation? But look at verse twenty nine. This is a tough one, but he says, "For it has been granted to you on behalf of Messiah to suffer for Him." This word "granted" has the word "charis" in it, the word for grace. Just as the gifts of the Spirit are a gift from God, hard to believe this, hard to think this way, but Paul says the opportunity to suffer for Messiah is a gift from him for you. So is there suffering? Count it a gift. Because Paul says if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. If we suffer with him, it's because he's already suffered for us. And therefore, consider it a worthy calling to suffer for the Lord. And then lastly, he says, not only is the proof of your salvation found or the, uh, <clears throat> that your, your courage, you, you need not to be frightened because you will be saved, verse 28, because this is a gift from God to suffer for him in verse 29. But look at verse 10. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, you never struggle alone. Whatever struggle you have, you're not alone. That's why the groups, again, are important. We feel like we're alone. Why? Because we're not connecting with one another. So now we're asking, and Andrew is, and Carlton are creating the groups for our benefit. So that when we struggle, we're not alone. When we need to learn, we have a whole bunch of people around us to help us to learn. That we are not the only ones who have ever suffered this way. Such suffering is occurring all over the world in a similar way and has occurred in time past as well. So he tells us, number one, to conduct yourselves, for me to conduct myself, to we to conduct ourselves in a manner that is consistent with our citizenship in heaven, we need to be a people of integrity, to be concerned that the way we live really reflects what we believe. We can no longer make the excuse, well, I'm a sinner. That's just the way I am. We need to be better than that and say, with God's grace, I can be a person of genuine integrity, not hypocrisy, which is what he 
the most scathing denouncements by our Lord against the religious leaders of his day was precisely because of that. But Paul's telling us, be a person of integrity, that your life lives out the truths we express. Be a person of unity. Seek to maintain the unity. It's the Spirit of God that causes the unity. It is for us to maintain it, Paul says in Ephesians. And we have to consider ourselves like an athletic team that comes together, supports one another, works with one another, encourages one another, and will do whatever it takes to be there for one another so that the message of the good news goes forward. And to be worthy of as, as a citizen of heaven not only means to be a person of integrity, and, um, but also a person that exhibits courage in the face of conflict. We don't have to buck like a, like a horse, but rather we can be encouraged because the Lord will save. We can be encouraged because it's a gift that God has given us to suffer for the name of Messiah. We can be encouraged because we're not alone. We have one another and many others before us, now and after us, will suffer similar things. And with these things in mind, Paul is saying, go forward in proclaiming the good news that we might experience the fullness of the forgiveness of sins and the joy everlasting. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.